We are on to rounds eight and nine of a head-to-head mock draft that we are breaking down for you right now on the Fantasy Baseball Podcast, Tuesday, January 24th. Adam Scott and Al here to talk a little bit of baseball. We don't have that big news from around the league, you know. We don't have the Pineda trade or anything like that. We get to talk about Carlos Pena and Marco Scudero. I mean, it's not that exciting right off the top of the show, right? I, I wish Prince Fielder would just make up yeah. his mind already. He's got a. He should be somebody. He's too big of a. He should be somewhere already. He's yes. too big of a name not yeah. to have a home. He doesn't have a team. He's not anybody. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's nothing for us right now in fantasy baseball. So a little bit of news, and then Scott and Al gets disagree. Four players that Scott and Al disagree on. We'll do four this week and probably four next week. And then, of course, uh, mock draft rounds eight through nine. And your email, send us an email, fantasybaseball at cbsinteractive.com. Fantasybaseball at cbsinteractive.com. Put podcast in the subject line. And I know it's early on, and it's great that we have listeners, even in January, who are really into it and sending us the email, so thanks a lot. All right, guys, Carlos Pena back with the Rays. Luke Scott is there, too. Carlos Pena, can he bounce back? Uh, can he you know, get the magic that he had when he was in Tampa Bay earlier, Scott? Probably not to the level where, obviously not the level of his 46 homer season, but even that 39 homer season where the batting average was much lower, I don't see him getting back to that. He's coming off back-to-back years now with less than 30 home runs, and one of those years was with the Rays. And uh, it seems like, you know, over the age of 30, he's he's reached a point now where he's not going to start uh, suddenly going back and, and, and building up that homer total again. I think he's, it's starting to taper off, and with his batting average barely over 200, if it even gets to 200, uh, a sub-30 homer guy is not somebody you want in mixed leagues. Yeah, and no, I agree. He's uh, a fringe guy in those formats at best, and you know he is who he is now because he's a few years at this level um, that's below really where he was at the peak. So, Adam Dunn or Carlos oh, Pena? Oh, Carlos Pena. <laughs> Okay. I, I'm going to take Adam Dunn just because I feel like there's more to salvage there. Um, and, you know, if it doesn't work out, I'll just cut him and pick, pick up, up somebody Pena. else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, Carlos Pena, maybe. <laughs> Marco Scudero traded to the Rockies. What are the implications here for the Red Sox and Rockies? Well, for the Rockies, bad news for Jonathan Herrera, who wasn't likely to hold on to that job anyway. So that whole mess of uh, guys that were going to compete for second base, DJ LeMahieu, Chris Nelson, they're back to uh, now battling for scraps, battling for a utility spot. So Scudero is the second baseman. No, Troy Tulowitzki's not going anywhere. He's not going to be the shortstop. And then in uh, Boston's, I guess, really where the more interesting things are going to happen because it looks like Micah Vila's right now, if they had to pick a starting shortstop, he would probably be the guy uh, with Nick Punto figuring in there and maybe even Jose Iglesias, although I think Probably not. Uh, I think they'd be more likely to go for an outside option than to give Iglesias a chance to play every day at this point. At this point, although I could see that happening later, although I'm not sure it mattered to fantasy owners because Jose Iglesias can't hit worth a leg. There you go. I, I think this is. Uh, I think there's more to this than maybe meets the eye with Scooter. Are you going to go with the Roy Oswalt transition here? No, I'm not going to go with the Royals Walt transition. I am going to sing the praises of Marco Scudero because he is a guy who has long been um, despised in fan. Well, not despised, but uh, kind of overlooked. You know those owners that are just a little bit too crazy about fantasy sports? (laughs) Well, certainly the Yankee fan owners might dislike him too. That's true. Um, 
But, you know, that that's kind of been uh, led by people who, uh, Jed Lowry supporters like me, so really I can't say too much about that. But I've gotten to the point now with Marco Scooter, obviously two years he had a year where he's a top 10 fantasy shortstop. And in the second half of last year, once Lowry kind of started to drop out of the picture, Scooter was a, was a solid contributor in mixed leagues as well. Now he's in, playing in Colorado. He's batting second in the lineup as opposed to ninth or wherever he hit most of the time for the Red Sox. He's always been a, a solid on-base guy. Batting in front of uh, Troy Tulowitzki and Carlos Gonzalez, I I could see him having a year much like he had two years ago. Maybe you know he he wouldn't provide um, the power numbers that he did. Uh, I think that was more like three years ago with Toronto. Two years ago with the Red Sox, he wasn't a power guy. So yeah, not not much, not many power numbers from Scudero, but the walks and the runs scored is going to make him a solid contributor in head-to-head leagues. Really, an underrated contributor at that weak position. So the Red Sox signed Cody Ross to a one-year, three million dollar deal. Off the air, we debated if if Cody Ross is even worth having on your roster. If you get paid three million dollars to have him. He had 240 with uh, 14 home runs last season. So, I mean, can he make any impact, Al? Well, first of all, just to go back to the non-fantasy impact, I, th- I think he's fine as a fourth outfielder, and that's what he'll be in Boston. But fantasy-wise, he'll be probably the, the lesser half of a right-field platoon with Ryan Sweeney. Ryan Sweeney gets the benefit of being a left-handed hitter, so that's going to help him out. And I actually think he's a better, much better fit for Fenway Park than Cody Ross is anyway aside from handedness. So, yeah, Ross is going to be a guy who's going to fill out a really deep AL-only roster, and I think that's going to be about it. So now we get to talk about four players that Alan Scott disagree on. And Brandon Morrow signed a three-year, $20 million contract with Toronto. He is first up in the fight list, because I want you guys to fight. Two years <laughs> with the Blue Jays and an ERA of four four nine and 4.72 in those two years. Al, you want to kick it off? I sure do, because well, I was the one who suggested, suggested this, because uh, he frustrates me. In <laughs> fact, he frustrates me so much that I'm going to probably write a column in about a month or so inspired by, by him on, <laughs> on how advanced stats lie about certain players. So okay. Morrow is, you know, I shouldn't say perennially because he hasn't been around that long, especially as a starter. But he seems to be a, a, a favorite of, of stat heads, of which I consider myself to be one. But that's because the advanced, advanced stats make him look like somebody who's always going to take a big step forward because those ERAs are a lot higher. Those mid-four ERAs are a lot higher than his strikeout rate, his walk rate, his fly ball rate would make you think that they're going to be. But sometimes when you see somebody who in consecutive years or, or you know, more than two years in a row underperforms according to what the, the advanced stats say that that player should do. You have to question what the advanced stats are saying. And I just think that this is a guy who has, you know, to, to boil it all down, he's not been good as a starting pitcher at stranding his base runners. So what's to make me think that he's going to be so much better at that in 2012? Okay, so you don't like he doesn't like Morrow. Brandon I don't Morrow. don't like Morrow. I think it's just you're going to get your hopes up and say this is the breakout well, year. Okay, and that's what everybody was saying last year, and I think you were among them predicting a breakout I year was. for Morrow. Uh, I think we had him maybe in the top thirty starting pitchers last year, and I I know I argued him down at the time. Now 
it seems like I'm against the majority again in uh, singing the praises of Morrow here, who I think made a lot of progress last year that didn't show up in the ERA. The ERA obviously rose to 472 up from 449 from the previous year, but his whip actually dropped to 1.29. And the reason for that is because he finally improved his walk rate, which had long been the 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 biggest uh, obstacle for him it beca- it was a career best 3.5 which is a decent number for anyone. I mean, it's still on the lower end of starting pitchers, but it's an okay walk rate. You can live with that walk rate. You can be a, a good pitcher with that walk rate. And and really, um, the biggest thing that he did last year, the biggest reason I thought people were overrating him entering last year was because he took that next big step forward with the innings. He jumped to 179 and a third, which isn't that many, but considering he's at 146 and a third the year before, that's a 33-inning 30, uh, jump. That's the kind of jump he'll need to make again this year to get over uh, that hump and become the 200-inning pitcher he'll need to be to be a, an ace in fantasy. So can he do it? I was worried that because of the uh, low strand rate, the ERA is still going to be high. He'll also get knocked out of games earlier, too. It's just going to make it hard for him to make that big jump in innings. But I think that that is probably not something that's going to continue. I, I, don't, I don't see that as part of his, um, part of his, uh, his, his what, what, what am I trying to say? I don't his know. profile as oh, a pitcher. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to help, but I didn't really know where, uh, where you want to go. So yeah. sum it up by just saying where you would draft him. I would draft him. Or, or like a number blank pitcher. Well, that's the thing. You can get him for a value now when last year you would have had to overpay for him. More people are in Al's camp now and thinking that this is who he is. He's not going to get any I got to search my camp better because I'm camp not finding out. all these people who, <laughs> who are well, agreeing with me. Look, look at where he's ranked. In the, I have him ranked 37th, which is lower than we had him ranked last year, even though I'm higher on him this year. So, fine, draft him as your fourth starting pitcher. If he gets over 200 innings, which I think he will, uh, considering the way his in- innings have progressed from year to year, if the walk rate remains down, the base runners remain down, he has better luck at stranding runners, then I think he has the potential with that strikeout rate, AL leading strikeout rate last year, to be a top 15 starting pitcher in fantasy. So you're talking about a big jump there from number 37 to arguably the 15th, 16th, 17th guy. So that to me is is the kind of value you're looking for in the middle rounds and why I'm very high on Brandon Morrow this year. Ooh, smacking the table. To emphasize, I like it. So where would you And I would not take him as the number four. I would, would even with that potential upside. But again, I've been burned by just hoping for that potential to be realized. So I would take him probably at best as a number five. Dustin Ackley. So now here's the fun thing about this list. I don't know who feels which way about these guys. Like, I don't know who supports Dustin Ackley and who doesn't here. So I'm going to guess that Scott likes Dustin Ackley. Because I just kind of remember you always saying that you like Dustin Ackley. I do like the Akinator. 276, six home runs, 36 RBI in 33 at-bats last year, and he scored 39, or 333 at-bats, not 33 at-bats. Um, and he scored 39 runs. All right, make your case for Dustin Ackley. How do you value him? Well, he started off hot, and I think Al and I were actually both high on Ackley at the beginning. I, I actually traded him to you in the mm-hmm. podcast league in a deal that landed me in Ian Kennedy. Uh, but he did kind of tail off towards the end of the year. Ended up hitting 273. 
okay, he was a rookie, 22-year-old rookie in his first half season in the majors. He came out of it hitting 273. That, to me, is, is, is nothing of consequence because for a rookie, I mean, a 273 batting average is still Respectable. above par. Right, yeah. I mean, it, it's fine. Um, what is interesting to me is the fact that he hit six home runs and seven triples in his 330-odd at-bats. 333. It was a much more power than I think, well, not much more, but it was more power than I think most people expected to see from him at that early stage of his career, particularly playing half his games at Safeco Park. And it says to me, if he can get to being the hitter with the batting average that he's always profiled to be, that made him the second overall pick behind Steven Strasburg in 2009, um, that caused him to have more walks than strikeouts throughout his minor league career, then that 15 homer pop, 15 triple pop potentially uh, is going to be enough to put him among the top seven or eight, maybe even five or six second basemen in head-to-head leagues. Uh, so so really, I think, I mean, I don't know where Al stands. I'm going to guess it boils down to whether or not you think there's as much room for improvement there with the batting average. Exactly. I, I say there absolutely is. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been the... He wouldn't have had the pedigree he had. He wouldn't have gotten drafted where he did. He wouldn't have been such an elite prospect. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I And I worry about the power. I would be much more optimistic about Ackley if he were playing his home games in a, in a better venue for him. But, um, you know, I do have concerns that the power may not jump, you know, at least not at this point. You know, I know we had a similar argument about Logan Morrison a year ago, an argument that you wound up winning because he had a power spike much earlier than I thought he would have it. But still... You know, you look at the minor league numbers, you look at where Ackley plays, I think the power could basically plateau at this point for a while. And then, yeah, he's really depending on the batting average to boost his his value. And he did, there is room for him to cut down on strikeouts, but he's a, a classic baby regression candidate here had a much higher batting average on balls in play last year than he ever did in the minors and nothing really to, to, to back it up to the level where it was. So, um, he's going to strike out less though. So he's, I'm I'm agreeing with you. He's going to strike out less, but I think if you just read into that, he's going to explode because he's this prospect with pedigree and there's room for him to cut back on strikeouts. I think a lot of that progress is going to get eaten up by outs that he's going to make on balls in play. And I, I think that he's, Any improvement you're going to see in him is going to be a lot more modest than you or or a lot of other people expecting. But how much does he really need to improve is is the thing. I mean, for most of the time he was up last year, he was a viable starter in 12-team mixed leagues. and. Right, for much of the time, but you know, if we don't discount the slump at the end of the year that brought his overall stats down, I think you're, you could see a stat line that's not that much better than that overall I'm stat discounting line. it. Rookie yeah. wall. <laughs> He's going to get over it. So I see him. You said you see him as a potential, what, top five or six, maybe seven or eight? Uh, seven I, or eight more realistically. I see him more in the 10 to 12 range. Pablo Sandoval hit three fifteen with 23 home runs and 70 runs batted in last year. Al? You like Pablo Sandoval. That's my guess. Yes. Yes, yeah. I do. I'm not just hating on due. everybody today. What's that? He was due to like somebody. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> you know, and, and here it is. It's, you know, we have three full seasons from him. We had the really surprising season three years ago uh, you know, where he was so much better than uh, anybody could have projected. Then our hopes were dashed two years ago with that miserable, disappointing year. Last year, he basically came back almost all the way to the level where he was in 09. So, 
you know, you look at, at where he is in the age curve. You look at the fact that that's two out of three seasons. You also look at the fact that two years ago, yes, there were weight issues. There were also issues in his personal life that were widely reported that, look, we can't know. We can't get inside his head. But it seems highly plausible that that was also having an impact on Sandoval. So I think that, you know, you go with the 09 numbers, the 11 numbers, and then 12, you're going to see at least as much production as you saw in those two years. I, I'm going to preface this by saying I don't dislike Sandoval. Sandoval. I think he's a perfectly adequate starter at third base in mixed leagues, and there might even be some instances where I draft him this year. I just think, assuming he's he's going to be able to continue the 900 OPS pace that he did to the last three seasons, it's, it's dangerous. And, and assuming that he's going to be able to do it over a full season is even more dangerous. You referenced the weight issues I mean, that's a big deal. That, to me, seems like the biggest reason why he dropped off in his second season because in between that second season and last year, he lost 38 pounds. Yeah. That, that, is, that is no small feat. That was through uh, rigorous diet and exercise. He should have he, a promo. He lost, he lost 38 pounds just to get down to 240 where he needed to be to put up the numbers he did last year. I, I don't know that I can expect anyone to have that kind of discipline, the, the amount of discipline it required to do that off-season after off-season after off-season. And he's a guy who, if he doesn't, I, I, he, can, he can balloon into this huge player who, who can't make the most of his natural abilities. And I think that's going to be a risk throughout his career. And not only is it going to affect his numbers, it's going to affect his playing time. Uh, he played only 117 games last year. I know a lot of that had to do with freakish injury. injuries. Yeah. But it, it still seems like to me, because of the way he's built, he's going to be an injury risk. And when you, when you factor in also just the, uh, the weight risk, to me he's part of that, that group of third basemen that all have great upside but all have risk in uh, David Wright, Ryan Zimmerman, Kevin Euclid, Alex Rodriguez, Michael Young you could throw in there because of his age. Sandoval to me is part of that group, and he has just as many concerns. And to me that's reason enough to pass on all of them and to go after somebody like Brett Lawrie um, maybe a, a round or two later. Okay. I just don't understand how he doesn't have like a Barkley-like promo. You know, like an like an endorsement. He needs a new agent. Apparently. Yeah. Well, I mean, thirty eight because pounds. he knows he's going to put it back on. <laughs> That's the thing. So, so all right, yeah, well, I'm taking him. I, I, you know, I agree with that. I put him on the upper end. I like him better than Michael Young. I like Sandoval better than uh, A Rod. I see him about number eight uh, among third basemen. I think Laurie probably can and should go before that. So I wouldn't pass on him thinking I can scoop up Brett Laurie. Okay. He's going to so, be gone. So maybe, yeah, because there is some I, – I probably underestimated Laurie in the beginning. I'm higher on him every day. Uh, so, okay, so if we both agree Sandoval is going to go after Laurie and should, then I would say pass on him for somebody like Emilio Bonifacio, who has all that steals potential and is also eligible a shortstop. Yeah, a lot of risk there too. Obviously, we're talking, you know, today. But you can get him for that much later. Well, to me, the risk seems close to equal. Oh no, I, I wouldn't. I don't know. We'll see. When, <laughs> unless Espedes, you know, signs with somebody other than the Marlins. Uh, well, uh, I think I think Bonifacio is a big yeah. playing time risk. S well, it's Espedes would change that. I agree, but I'm not. So you think he's that close to signing with the Marlins? That you're... I don't think he's that close, but I think it's enough of a, of a possibility that if I had to draft today saying, okay, maybe there's a 30, 40, 50% chance that happens versus I think Sandoval's got you know, a really good chance 
to replicate his numbers from last year. Okay. That, to me, yeah. is a safer play. Yeah, you throw in that risk, then obviously it's an issue. But you look at somebody like Aramis Ramirez, who has his own risks, but you know, how many rounds later could you get him than Sandoval? And to me, it just doesn't seem worth uh, making that reach on a guy who you really can't guarantee to put up those stud numbers. Jonathan Sanchez, the last guy we'll debate today. 4-7 and seven with a 4.26 ERA, 102 strikeouts, 66 walks last year for the Giants. Now he is a Kansas City Royal. Scott, I don't think you like Jonathan Sanchez. I don't oh, like, look, I am mailing this. I don't like <laughs> You're Johnny so good Sanchez. <laughs> and changing leagues from the NL to the AL is certainly not going to do anything to help me like him. But really the bigger issue for me is that He's had one season where he's lived up to what mixed league owners have been wanting him to do, and that was in 2010. You look at his peripherals that season, and it, it, it strikes me as a year where everything just happened to break right. Uh, he still led the majors in walks that year, which it has always been his problem. The, the reason he was able to survive it is because he had an, an amazing 6.6 hits per nine innings rate. And... Uh, that is not something I expect him to repeat ever. He had 7.1 hits per nine innings last year, which is still great. And and look what happened to him. He couldn't get out of, he couldn't pitch deep into games. He was still walking a ton of batters. His ERA was up uh, over 450. And I Sanchez had uh, of his 19 starts last year, he pitched less than six innings in 12 of them. And and that looked look to me like the Sanchez we saw in the years leading up to that breakout 2010 where, oh, yeah, he's got all this strikeout potential. He could be a great contributor for your team. But he he walks too many batters, and he can't last long enough. And I think he did it again last year. I think it's only going to continue. I think that's who he really is. And, and then he's got the obstacle of pitching in the league with the DH now also. All right. And I will concede that point. When that was the first thing out of your mouth. I said, yeah, absolutely count on fewer, not a lot fewer, but fewer strikeouts from Sanchez this year because of pitching in the AL. But everything else I see very, very differently. Yes, 2010 was the best season for Sanchez. Everything did come together, but that was a pattern of three straight years of improvement for Sanchez. So it wasn't just like a one-time outlier. He was building towards that. And then that it would be an overstatement to say that the continued early last season, uh, he didn't continue to improve at the rate that he'd been improving, but the Sanchez that pitched the first two months of the season for the Giants last year was very much like the guy who pitched in 2010, and it wasn't until the month of June when everything fell apart. He totally lost his command, but he also went on the DL not long thereafter. I don't know if it's just, you know, if it's causation yeah. or coincidence, but, you know, the point is that for for the first third of last year before you know he got hurt or not you know not long before that he was the same guy he's a guy who can succeed with iffy control now he well, can't succeed sure it was with the terrible third and not just april well i don't have it in front of me but his overall numbers for those first two months were were solid they were okay. they were you know 2010 you know, 2009, 2010, Jonathan Sanchez kind of numbers cuz that is a fair point to point to the injury is something that could have set him back uh, I, but I feel like, you know, he had that isolated period last year where he looked great. He's had isolated periods in the past where he's looked great, and everybody picks him up off the waiver wire, and then he lasts four and a third innings for two starts <laughs> in a row, and everybody drops him again. And 
Uh, I just thought that just there was not- such an overreaction to Sanchez that I didn't understand. I mean, the, the organization seemed to lose faith in him. Maybe it's just a philosophical thing where they really are impatient with guys with, with spotty command. But he, you know, we saw in 2010, he can get away with that as long as it's within reason. And so I don't see any reason to think that he can't you know, get back on the horse in 2012 and be that same kind of pitcher that he was. You mentioned the hits hit rate. Well, he's always been a guy who's been very good at limiting hits on balls and play because he, he trends as a, as a fly ball pitcher. And now he's going to Kansas city, which is also an excellent park to pitch in. So he's not going to be a home run liability just like he wasn't in San Francisco. Sanchez or Brandon Morrow? Sanchez. You would draft Sanchez over Brandon Morrow. Yeah, I would like, you, I'm not saying you'd pass on Brandon Morrow and then draft Sanchez later. I'm saying if you had the choice in the same round, Sanchez or Morrow, you'd take Sanchez. Yeah, I would. Wow. You wouldn't. No. Yeah. I, like, like I said, yeah. I have Brandon Morrow in my top 40 starting pitchers. Sanchez, to me, he's, he's, he's barely on the fringe of being a sleeper. I, I, I might not even draft him in some mixed leagues. So to me, that's... Uh, there's a much bigger discrepancy there. I like it. I like it. Okay, we have uh, four more next week. Mock drafts rounds, uh, mock draft rounds eight through nine. So we've been going through this head-to-head mock, and you can go back listen to previous shows if you want rounds one through seven. But ra- it is hot in here, isn't it, Al? Yeah, I'm a little overdressed. Yeah, Al's yeah. fanning himself with the mock that's, draft that's paper. That's because there was so much friction yeah. between the two of us. <laughs> we got so heated. We're in yeah. a, a, a room right now that is like so friggin' hot. All right, here we go. Round eight starts with Madison Bumgarner, Billy Butler, Chris Carpenter, David Ortiz, Craig Kimbrell, Michael Bourne, Brandon Phillips, Dan Ugla, Brett Laurie, Dustin Ackley, B.J. Upton, Jonathan Applebaum. Sorry, I didn't mean Uh, to talk over you. That's a terrible pick. Al took (laughs) Ackley. (laughs) Scott took Ugla, and then Al took Ackley. There you go. So, again, it's Bumgarner, Billy Butler, Carpenter, Ortiz, Kimbrell, Bourne, Phillips, Dan Ugla, Laurie, Ackley, Upton, Papelbon. A couple closers coming off there. First closers, actually. Kimbrell being the first here in the middle of round eight. What do you think about that? Him as the first closer, or and and the round. and the round. I think both are about right. Uh, you know, it, it seems every year uh, the general fantasy owner is looking to draft closers later because it's it's just becoming more and more common knowledge that you get guys like J.J. Putz and Kimbrell last year who emerges in the late rounds as elite closers. So I think you can afford to wait that long. And I think Kimbrell, with his crazy strikeout rate and and pitching for a Braves team that's built geared toward save opportunities, I, I think he's definitely the number one closer. It should be noted that this is definitely before Papelbaum was a Philly, right? Ye- I'm pretty sure. Yes. Yeah. But but yeah, he was still Papelbaum. Yeah. To me, that doesn't change his value that much. Yeah, so this, this draft's a little old, um, and, and you're going to see some, some picks that might look a little weird. Uh, maybe not necessarily in these two rounds, but just because there there have been some there has been some player movement. Well, All right. I, I think one thing that looks weird to me um, is Laurie here in round eight, one pick before Ackley. Based on the discussion we just had about the two of those mm-hmm. guys, it seems like Laurie is looking like he's probably going to go a round or two earlier than that now. Yeah, um, ahead of some uh, some of the third baseman probably drafted ahead of him, and then. Ackley in round eight. That's probably about the earliest 
he would go. And it's, I, I think, and I just got done saying, well, I, I didn't talk about round. I said, you know, 10th or 12th, but I probably, well, whatever. Well, I'm sure we'll get to this later, but I probably wouldn't do that again. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it was a case of I took Dan Ugla here and somebody who you perceived as a value at that point, and, and I did too. And mm-hmm. then you're like, oh, shoot, i got to get a, fir- a second baseman. That's exactly so what kinda, it was. kind of reached for Ackley there. Yeah, really? because there wasn't a second baseman. Well, there was Howard Kendrick went in round Kendrick, 10. Kendrick, yeah, and in retrospect, um, yeah, that was really a, a, a pretty bad pick on my part and a panic pick. And so you like Kendrick in round 10 better than uh, Ackley in round 8? Oh, definitely. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about B.J. Upton, Al, going in round eight? Uh, it seems like it, it might be uh, a bit early, particularly for head-to-head. But, uh, you know, I'm scanning this to see, you know, who else was around. Uh, I would have taken but, Michael Morse. Yeah, I certainly would have, too. I mean, without question. So, yeah, no, I think that's a little bit early for B.J. Upton. Not ridiculously so. Um, I tell you, the guy that stands out, <laughs> other than my own pick of Ackley here, uh, and, and Papelbon, I think, was too early there. And I think Chris Carpenter was too early with the third pick in round eight. Um, you know, there's still... I, I see a big drop-off there from the pitcher taken before him, Madison Bumgarner, mm-hmm. to yeah. Chris Carpenter. Uh, Bumgarner is a guy who I, I think has the potential to maybe top that top 15 threshold this year, too. And Carpenter, obviously, trending... The other way is a guy in his late 30s. So round nine, Max Scherzer, Corey Hart, Tim Hudson, Michael Morse, Desmond Jennings, Emilio Bonifacio, Sean Markham, Irvin Santana, Aramis Ramirez, Nick Marcakis, Ubaldo Jimenez, John Axford. Again, it's Scherzer. This is the beginning of round nine. Scherzer, Hart, Tim Hudson, Morse, Desmond Jennings, Bonifacio, Sean Markham, Irvin Santana, Aramis Ramirez, Marcakis, Jimenez, Axford. Scott, best and worst pick of round nine. The best pick, um, but to me, it's between Michael Morse and Desmond Jennings, who you took Jennings. I did take Jennings. I feel like this is something we've seen consistently with this draft, which was, you know, based based mostly off my early off season rankings that came out pretty much right after the season ended. And, you know, obviously everybody used their own opinion in drafting their own teams, but they were kind of going off those rankings. And we've seen here with Jennings, Laurie, and Eric Hosmer that I underrated all three. Um, I I underrated how other people would perceive them because I'm very high on all three. I think they all have stud potential in their sophomore seasons. And uh, I I don't think you can necessarily expect to find Desmond Jennings there in round nine. But Michael Morse, you guys both referred to, a guy uh, who had a 900 OPS last year. Uh, I think both Al and I feel like the breakthrough, although it seemed to come out of left field, we both feel like it's legitimate and he's somebody who can be a 30-homer guy for the next few years. So I I think getting that in round nine is, is, is... uh, a pretty nice pick. What about the worst? Um, well, I my immediate reaction is Nick Markakis, and it might just be because of what I perceive the drop-off to be from Michael Morrison, Desmond Jennings, to somebody like Markakis, who doesn't look like he's, you know, even a... Well, he's certainly not a lock for 20 home runs and, and might not even get 15. So 
there's that. And then I feel like Emilio Bonifacio, too, is somebody I may have overrated in the rankings initially, causing him to go at this point in the draft. I'm still very high on him uh, because, you know, based on what he did in, from uh, the June 22nd, I think the date was, on, he was an elite player. And, you know, he's got shortstop and third base eligibility. So as long as he's getting the at-bats, I feel like he's going to be a steal for some fantasy owner. But if you can steal him later than round nine, then you might as well wait until later to do that. And, and based on the early mock draft results I'm seeing from elsewhere on the web, uh, Emilio Bonifacio shouldn't be going that high. Al, what stands out to you from round nine? Pretty much... Most of what Scott said, and we're almost in complete agreement here. Uh, Michael Morse, I think, is a great bargain in this round. Um, and he's somebody who just really needed an opportunity because if you do look back at his numbers as a part-timer and as a minor leaguer, he's always had, or I don't know about always, but certainly for a long time, has had that home run power. Uh, so I do like him. Uh, and then, yeah, I think Mark Kakis, given some of the other uh, outfield options uh, that were still available, you, know, you could have waited on him. Um the other name that stands out is uh, Ubaldo Jimenez. I think that's a little bit of a reach for him. And I do expect a bounce back season, but I think that, you know, there's plenty of guys uh, that followed Jeremy Hellickson, Gio Gonzalez, um, that, uh, you know, would have been, you know, arguably better picks. And, you know, certainly you could have at the very least waited. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about Jimenez as we get closer to the season. Uh, he'll be an interesting one, an interesting bounce-back candidate. We'll see what you guys think about him in the uh, coming weeks. So let's get to the emails, fantasybaseball at cbsinteractive.com, fantasybaseball at cbsinteractive.com. Send us an email and put podcast in the subject line. And we start out with Jalskalka from Grantham, New Hampshire. Hi, guys. What would you consider by round the best positions to draft? I usually draft the top two pitchers available, then a catcher. Shortstop, second base. Um, is there a recipe for drafting that works? I, in terms of position, I really don't. I think it's very much a, a contingent thing where uh, you know you try to, to fill for for scarcity. So if you can get a, a really good shortstop, a Troy Tulowitzki early, or Robinson Cano, or Dustin Pedroia, you know that's great. But uh, you know I think once you get past the elite players of that rounds, you could just take that order of positions and, and flip it around. And I find in most drafts the last couple of years, I wait very long to get a shortstop because I either miss out on Tulowitzki or, or there's somebody else I want even more. So, um, yeah, I don't really think there's a recipe. Um, I guess that, you know, I just sort of summed up my philosophy, which is if you can get the very best guys at those positions, yeah, go for it. Otherwise, uh, you know, you can wait for a shortstop. You can wait for a second baseman. You can certainly wait on a catcher. I don't think there's any catcher, even Carlos Santana. I would, go for in the first two, maybe even three rounds. Generally speaking, it, it seems like I, I tend to shore up my infield first because particularly if I'm in a position to get somebody like Troy Tulowitzki in the first round, you know, maybe uh, an Ian Kinsler in the second round. It, like Kind of like you said, if you can get one of those top, top guys, it's absolutely worth doing, and, and, and that's how I prioritize them. But it, it's dangerous to use that as a, just an overriding rule because – there gets to be a point where if you miss out on those guys, then you absolutely should wait till very late to draft them. I think a good uh, tip for uh, for this emailer would be to look into the tiers approach. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be writing a column on that in before the end of February, and that kind of lays out a good step-by-step guide for um, when to grab what position when. Let's go to Michael from Tennessee. Keeper League. 
I can keep three guys, my first rounder and two others. I get two rounds before I drafted them. Uh, I'm keeping Longoria in the first, but should I keep Freddie Freeman in the 18th round, Adam Wainwright in the 23rd, or Michael Morse, who I picked up and can get in the last round? So it's Freeman in the 18th, Wainwright in the 23rd, or Michael Morse in the final round? I think... uh Boy, that's a tough call between Wainwright and Morse. We just talked about how much we liked Morse. I think Wainwright, knowing uh, the ace potential he has and, and you know knowing how reliable Tommy John surgery is, I, I think he's pretty much a shoe-in to get back to that level, if not the first couple months by midseason. So I think if you have a chance to get him for a late, to keep him for a late rounder like a 23rd, you, you have to do it. And unfortunately, that means... Uh, throwing Michael Morse back. We got to keep two though. Okay, Freeman. Well, so you're keeping Freeman. You're saying? No, I'm keeping. You uh, can keep three I'm overall. Sorry. I'm keeping Wainwright and Morse. Oh, okay. As the two and throwing Freeman back. So I would do the same. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Mike in Austin, Montana, seven person, no penalty keeper league, where you can keep up to five and draft the remaining. I have I have my five, but my last two I am considering are Chris Young and Gio Gonzalez. What do you think? Do I let them go for about a 50-50 shot at Ben Zobrist or Michael Young? Uh, boy, I'm not really that enthralled with, with either Chris Young or Gio Gonzalez as a keeper uh, when you have, let's see, you can keep up to five, he says? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is he saying he's, this is a seven-man league? Yeah. Like there are seven teams in, okay. in that league, and, and, yeah. and the best he can do for a fifth-keeper spot is Chris I Young wasn't even thinking about Gonzalez. it as a seven-team league. Even in a 12-team league, I wasn't. This doesn't that, make sense. So, yeah, no, go for, go for Zobrist. I think Michael yeah. Young, too, you don't necessarily need to worry about. But Zobrist, I think out of all these names, is the one guy who could be a legit keeper. All right. Finally, Chad. 10-team league, 5x5, five 5, 10 players protected. Uh, here's a list of 14 guys, which I have to narrow to 10. I bolded nine of the players who I like, uh, both Wainwright and Laurie and Hellickson. I feel I can get back at some point during the draft. So that narrows it down to Moore or Pence. Moore, I believe, is more upside than Hellickson, but Pence may be more in demand due to a smaller ballpark and better lineup in Philadelphia. So would you keep Matt Moore or Hunter Pence? I will not read the nine that he bolded. I think the key um, to this is that he, he's not keeping guys at a, a set value. He's keeping just the best uh, ten players on his roster, yes. You know whether or not they project as early rounders or late rounders. And, and to me, Matt Moore is somebody you can get back easier uh, probably than than somebody like Laurie, who we just discussed is looking more and more like he's uh, ahead of the Pablo Sandoval's and, and some of that mid-tier of, or second-tier of third baseman. Uh, so I would rather have Laurie than Moore. Um, and, you know, I'd like to find a way to get Wainwright in there too, but I, I think Laurie would be the top priority for me, making sure you have that player who looks like he's going to be an elite option at a weak position for a long, long time. Yeah, well, and, you know, to get to the, the Moore versus Pence, and yeah, I mean, there's a lot of moving parts here that we can we can switch around, but if the choice comes down to Moore and Pence, I, I think Scott's right that Pence is probably going to go earlier, but by the same token, he's already got Jennings and Kemp. 
Uh, you know, I, I think I would probably roll the dice here and, and keep more because I think he might go quicker than a lot of people think just in some early mocks. He's been going very early and, um, you know, you can probably get a, a decent number three outfielder, um, you know, and, and, you know, we've agreed that, you know, Pence is coming into the season pretty overrated anyway. So, yeah. so, uh, um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a tough call, but I think I would go for the upside of more and, and, you know, roll the dice there. In a league where you have to keep as many as 10 players, yeah, I can see that. And if it is, if it does come down to only those two players, then yeah, I could see that too as someone who is also not very high on Hunter Pence. But if Laurie's one of your choices, I still say you got to go Laurie. <laughs> you guys still friends after the show? Yeah, I think we'll, we'll, we'll do okay. Yeah, We have to sit next to each other, so <laughs> yeah, we, got, we, we might as well make nice. Work, we'll work it out. Good stuff. We'll be back next week with more from Scott White and Al Melchior. I'm Adam Azer. Thanks, everyone. Again, it's Fantasy Baseball at CBSInteractive.com.